Hi, this is Ellen Barnett, and this is Smart Women I Know. And today I am with an incredibly smart woman who I met through another one. Uh, this is Elise Weiner, aka Elise Pine. Yep. And um, and she has had quite a journey, and it's really interesting stuff. But right now. She is the director of marketing at Material Impact, which is a venture capital firm, which specializes in... Investing in novel materials, material science-based companies. So there you have it. Mm -hmm. um, so say hello. Hello. It's All great right. to be here. Thanks for having me, Ellen. Um, so I'm going to jump right in. Yeah. You... And, and we'll get into your journey, but you have traveled several industries. Yes. And several cities, which I, I'm familiar with. Um, but you've, you've had a sort of a directed course that you made all your own. And a lot of us worry about this, you know, we're on this competitive wheel. Mm-hmm where we seem to find 52 other people doing exactly the same thing and all competing for the same work, right. whether it's a job that's um, full-time or, or your freelance stuff. Um, you carved a path that's uniquely your own, and that's what I really want to get into, but I know that it must have started a little bit by how you were raised. That right. sort of helps you become who you are and, and the confidence that you have. So tell yes. me about that. What's your mom like? What are you, what's your yeah. family like? So I was raised in Needham, Massachusetts, suburb of Boston, um, as an only child, which can be a blessing and a curse. <laughs> um, so how is it both? Yes. I mean, a blessing because, um, you know, I was really the apple of my parents' eyes and raised very much with the mentality that I could accomplish anything I wanted. You know, um, my parents always believed in me, always really pushed me um, to do things that maybe I was a little bit afraid of, to try activities, try out new sports, um, new subjects, new challenges, just, you know, that I might not have chosen on my own because they, you know what, they taught me how to feel comfort in the uncomfortable. And that is something that I've definitely carried forward in my career. How did they do that? You know, I think that they spotted in me um, some of the strengths that I wouldn't have necessarily cultivated on my own. For instance, as an only child, another part of the blessing was the fact that whenever we were anywhere on vacation or I was with my parents, I always had to make friends. You know, I always had to find other kids my age or communicate with people if I didn't want to be hanging out with my parents all the time. So from a young age, I would talk to anyone who would listen to me. I was the most talkative child. I mean, my parents loved the story of my mom and my aunt took me shopping for clothes when I was a little kid, and we were in a dressing room, and all of a sudden, I just took off out of the dressing room, ran through the mall. They couldn't find me anywhere. When they finally found me, I was sitting down with a family at a restaurant, just yapping their ears off, chatting with them, making new friends. That's that's unusual. Is now are are your parents like that or is that unique to you? I it's it's definitely unique to me, but I see a little bit of it in both of my parents. They are um they have a ton of friends. They're very engaging. My dad is the type of person who needs to know the full life story of every waitress or waiter we've ever had in a restaurant. Um so I grew up seeing them around people, um, being around almost an extended family of my parents' friends, of my own friends, and starting to almost, you know, cultivate a family outside the four walls of our house mm. because I was desperate for human interaction. I love being around people. I love um, meeting people who are different from me and have different perspectives. But at the end of the day, I can always find commonality because I just have no, I've at this point, have no fear when it comes to just speaking up. Do you think that requires a certain empathy. I mean, I think human empathy is the basis of everything. Absolutely. It's certainly the basis of UX. I never understood why they don't quite get that. Right. The, the two connect. Yeah. But tell me, I would suspect 
that being able to interact with people just means that you have an empathy. You want to hear what they have to say. You Absolutely. Want, you feel for them. Right. And it's about, you know, walking a mile in somebody else's shoes, um, which is definitely something that I've leaned on heavily as a marketer, you know, as far as market research goes, as far as understanding the customer, you know, beyond what you can learn on a piece of paper or in a report, but actually talking to someone, that's where I've gained the greatest insights for marketing is really sitting down face to face with a human being, you know, um, and really trying to understand what their story is. Yeah. Um, and so one of the areas that my parents actually thought would be perfect for me um, because they saw, you know, obviously this very talkative, outgoing child that didn't have any brothers and sisters to hang out with. Right. They put me into theater at a very young age. I was a full-on drama kid. So, so, <laughs> so which shows did you do? Because I think I could probably... Oh, imagine. yes. I mean, <laughs> Guys and Dolls was a big oh, one that I did. Which, which role? Adelaide. Oh, my goodness. Adelaide's sake. Lament. That was my favorite song. Can I do her voice? <laughs> A poison. There you go. Don't yeah. Don't get us started. We'll we'll do nothing but sing old show right. tunes. But um. But actually, one of the earliest programs my parents put me in was something called Walnut Hill, which is out in Natick, um, Massachusetts, where we actually wrote our own plays and acted them out ah. as kids. So there I was actually creating characters and getting to actually step into the shoes of those characters. Um, Which, of course, is marketing. Absolutely. So that was from from the earliest age. I was at theater class, you know, three times a week. I loved it. I I loved expressing myself on stage. Um, Again, that feeling of being uncomfortable. You know, when you're the lead of a play and you have, you know, 500 lines that you've memorized and you have to get up in front of an audience... It was terrifying, but it was also so rewarding. And so that is actually something from, I mean, I was probably nine or ten years old, taking on really meaty roles and stepping up on a stage in front of an audience of strangers and having to feel comfort in that very kind of uncomfortable scenario for a young person. Were you precocious? Yeah, a little bit. Is that a good thing or a not good thing? I think it could be a good thing. You know, I, I think um, tempered, it can be a good thing. <laughs> Were you, um, so your, your mom, did she work? So she worked up until the time that she had me. And then she worked part-time for my father, who, who runs his own business. And what business is that? It's called Burton Uniform. So it's a uniform business. Um, the uniform business is one that's been in his family for a long, long time. He grew up with his father having his own business as well um, in uniforms. And really, he um, supplies uniforms to hospitality, to physicians, um, anything you can think of. Were there any Were there any worries? Um, I mean, did he work a lot? Were there yeah. money worries? What kinds of things did you have as sort of... Because otherwise... You know, I, I'm looking at you, you're, you're blonde, you're beautiful, you're young. It's like, uh, I want to hate you. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's something about it that I, I'm always hungry, too, to see that everybody yeah. is sort of equal Absolutely. in life. And there are always going to be challenges. Yeah. And I wonder, did you have to overcome something that... Right. I mean, I think that money has always been... Um, something that, you know, we were always extremely comfortable. We lived in a beautiful suburb. I went to an amazing school. Mm -hmm. I went to summer camp in the summers. I had everything I could possibly want. Right. But, um, my parents are, you know, especially my father is extremely frugal. And, you know, when you are running a business and really the sole provider for your family, there's a lot of stress that accompanies that kind of role. And li- living in Needham, Massachusetts, yes. I might add. So my parents always taught me, you know, the grass is always greener. You can't compare us to your friends. But I did. As a child, I wanted, you know, I saw my parent, my friends going on vacations. I saw mm-hmm. them having things that I didn't, seeing, um, having access to resources that we didn't. And I remember growing up, you know, with a little bit of, oh, I wish I had this. I wish I had that. 
But by the time I actually left Needham and went out into the world and um, went to college, I realized I'm so, so grateful for the upbringing I had. I, you know, the earliest I could work, I had a job. Actually, I had, <laughs> at one point I was balancing two jobs and being a full-time student and athlete and all yeah. the different activities that I had. Um, because, you know, my parents always kind of taught me the importance of a dollar and hard work. Yeah. You know, and so I, I learned that early on. And when I graduated college, you know, when a lot of my friends were trying to figure their way out or maybe going back home to live at home for a little bit of time before venturing out and finding a career, I just always had this goal of I have to make it on my own. My parents have taken me this far. You know, they've helped me get through my education. They've helped me get to this point. I want to be independent. I, I, I don't want them paying my cell phone bill. I don't want them paying my rent. I want to find a job and take care of myself. Well, and I important. imagine they felt the same way. Yes. I mean, it wasn't like they were coming to you and saying this is taken care of. It, it, it feels yeah. distasteful when, when parents do exactly. that. Exactly. Because that's your time. Right. Um, and in the summers, yeah. you know, I, it was not... It was never idle time for me. I always had to be doing something productive. So by, by the time I was old enough, I was applying for internships and jobs and making money in the summer and establishing relationships. And that's actually how I ended up in New York City because I, in college, I worked for a couple of investment banks which while one? I was a student. BNP Paribas, uh-huh. um, which is a French investment bank, um, they're their office in New York. I worked out of my summer after my sophomore year and then Merrill Lynch the summer after my junior year, which is the company I would eventually go to work for when I graduated. Wow. Did you always know you wanted to go into finance? Because yeah, you, you came from a very different background. So one of the other avenues my parents helped encourage me to get into when I was in high school was mock trial. I Mm. loved mock trial. I thought I wanted to be an attorney. Um, which is funny because I married an attorney. Um, I again, it's the performing arts. I loved the stage of it. I loved the you know, I loved public speaking. Mm. I loved the variability of it. You know, you could study the case, but you never knew what the other side was going to come up with. Uh-huh. Um, and I really just you know fell in love with the idea of becoming an attorney. So I went to Cornell and um, actually entered into their College of Industrial and Labor Relations, which was really focused on labor law um, and employment law, but also on business and organizational development, um, leadership development, and HR. So it was funny, when when I got there, I started really loving the business courses I was taking. And we also had access to the business school at Cornell, that I took a couple of classes in that were very entrepreneurial. And I loved those classes. I loved creating a business, you know, a business plan around an idea, around a concept, and kind of seeing that through. And now, did, did you have at those classes, in those classes, do they at all approximate the feel of a startup? You yes. Know, there's a certain... There's a certain energy that is very addictive about being yeah. in a startup culture. Absolutely. And, and, once you, and once you go there, it's hard yeah. to think about being a cog in a wheel attorney. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I, I found that some of the courses I took in law, um, you know, it was a lot about precedent. It was a lot about looking back. And I loved the idea of looking forward to, mm, you know, and actually flushing out an idea that had never been discussed and you know almost that green space to just brainstorm and collaborate with people and bring something through and there's definitely a risk that it could fail but there's also this small small opportunity that could be huge and that which was really is, exciting for me which is really interesting because um in the trajectory of your career and i'm going to make a few jumps here yeah absolutely lots of subjects to cover but um in the trajectory of your career you jump from finance to you you jump to pharma yes and then you're back at venture funds which is an and and a startup right with new technologies that like yeah. like soft robotics right and zero mass water which are 
for most of us way out there. So you've come full, full circle, circle back <laughs> around to that, which Absolutely. is honestly, I think what a lot of people do. Right. I mean, I think we sort of find after, after, um, many tries, we find our own, uh, little sweet spot. Yeah. What I wanted to touch on a little bit before we move forward, because there's, as I say, there's a lot, lot to talk about, but you hit on a point that um, the smart women I know that I've already spoken with, there's sort of one thread that unifies it all, and that is the value of hard work. Right. And what's interesting is that you, with a strong social presence, and of a generation where strong social presence has been sort of taught absolutely i think older generations sometimes and i've heard this you know like to dismiss a generation like yours who has yeah. a strong social presence as not knowing the value of hard work but as a writer who is busy nonstop myself um I can't keep up with social. Right. If I could keep up with social, that's hard work. Oh, absolutely. And I think that hard work comes in all shapes and formats right. and sizes, but I appreciate, because I think I think that's the nut of your story. And it, when I met you and we talked, it was something you, you sort of didn't hit on, but it's inherent right. in your energy and... And curiosity and enthusiasm. I think all of those require a certain sensibility right. of like, if I work hard, then this enthusiasm will be born out. Right. And I actually, I get energy from hard work. You know, I, to a lot of people, a lot of hard work can drain you. But for me, if I'm not operating on all cylinders, I feel like something's wrong. You know, <laughs> it's actually, those have been the times in my career where I've checked in with my gut and said, I think it's time for a change yeah. because I'm not growing, I'm not challenged. Um, and you know, a lot, a lot of my friends will make fun of me and say, you know, you're, you are crazy. You're doing too much. You're taking on more than maybe you can handle. But I find that I just have like this spark, the, the most creativity, um, the most joy in my work when I'm flexed to capacity and it's a great thing but you know on the negative side of it it's hard to relax you know and what's great is I married somebody who's a real really great compliment to me and pushes me to turn it off and yeah. unplug um, because you know you, you need to find a way to manage stress productively but I love um, taking on a lot of projects I love um, taking risks putting myself into situations that are a little scary because, you know, if, I, if I'm not scared at least one time per day, I feel like I'm not living. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. But, but that's something. Right. I mean, that's, that's saying something if I'm not scared because most yeah. of us, you know, most human beings will naturally avoid fear. Right. You know, we're, I mean, if we're we can go to. the, yeah, if we can go the straight way and get there, in, in due time versus hitting a little bit of fear and but with the possibility of exceptional, mm -hmm. we pretty much most often, you know, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with, do you have, as you mentioned, your father, you have a right. child, you have a, nug, a nugget to crack every, every month, right. you have to pay the bills. Exactly. And you have to... And you have a lot of livelihoods on your shoulders. So, Absolutely. So I, I get that. But you, you'd you mentioned your friends saying, you know, that they think you take on too much. Um, but in the rest of the world, do you ever get judged or judgment? Do you ever feel that yourself? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, not necessarily judgment around my hard work. But yeah. I think that, you know, when you walk in a room and you're a woman, and you look younger than yeah. everybody else at the table, um, you know, people kind of look at you differently, and their expectations may be different. Um, you know, I, I joke because we recently 
had a meeting and I turned to one of my partners and I said, I bet you they're saying, who's this chick? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, one of um, the partners at Material Impact who's actually really been a mentor to me, Carmichael Roberts, who was the founding partner of Material Impact. Um, Carmichael um, is a VC um, and his career has also not been the most traditional. He was definitely younger and African-American in an environment with a lot of much older white men around the table. And he could have looked at that and, you know, actually looked at the, that opportunity and the, the fear that accompanies that opportunity and turned away and almost felt, you know, sorry for himself in that scenario. But instead, I think he did something pretty amazing, which was he flipped it on its head and used the fact that people were looking at him and wondering, who's this guy in the room, right. to his advantage. And he taught me that really early on in my career when I was working for MC10, one of the portfolio companies um, were in which he you know, co-founded and served as the chairman for, um, you know, he saw that I was starting to have some trepidation about my role amongst a very male dominated community of men, um, who were older than me. And he said, use it to your advantage because people are going to look at you and their expectations may be less, but you're going to amaze them because all eyes are going to be on you for a moment. And you have that moment to completely change their mind. Yeah, if you can if you can turn it on and be sharp, and I, right. I, I'm certain that having a theater background helps in that Absolutely. moment because um, it comes out of some place that you don't understand. It's just natural. Right. It's yeah, and I you know I'm not afraid to speak up. I never have been, um, and if I feel like I have a good idea and a point that needs to be made, it's hard for me to stay <laughs> quiet. It is so. You know, and I I fast forward to when I was at MC10, and I'm not sure if I told you the story already, but we launched our first product. um, It's called the Reebok Checklight with Reebok. Um, It was a skull cap with sensors embedded into the cap for measure to measure for hard impacts to the head in contact sports. Yeah. um, Which was a really exciting technology at a time where wearables were just starting to become a category and concussions were a hot, you know, are still continue to be a really big topic in sports. Well, NFL just contracted with somebody for right. technology that sounds very similar. Right. They're definitely um, under scrutiny to, you know, to do something about this epidemic mm-hmm. now that there's such an increased awareness out there around the impact of these head injuries to athletes, both and at the professional level and at the, you know, the youth level. And Reeboks was for youth, yeah? Yeah. So this was a uh, really focused on youth sports. Um and really, you know, what was exciting was I got to serve as almost the, the product manager and develop the brand for this product. Um, and because, you know, from on the MC10 side of things, it was really just myself and my colleague doing, you know, the bulk of the work to get this product off the ground. It was a really exciting project for me. Um, and as I mentioned to you, I love launching new products, new brands. In a cat, you know, in, in new categories where nothing like this really exists at the time. Right. So you're educating the market, you're educating parents and youth sports teams on the importance of the technology, um, you know, while also, you know, creating this new category in the market with a giant like Reebok. It's a lot to navigate. Um, and we actually attended a big event that is put on in Las Vegas for athletic trainers who in many cases are the ones making the decisions about what kind of equipment that these kids are going to be wearing. And so I actually worked with someone to commission a big booth that we had that showcased the technology and we were so excited. It was one of the first times that we were out in the market talking about it and selling the product. And I remember I got to the booth um, a little early and um, my colleague was speaking with someone who also just approached the booth. And he said to him, so is that your booth, babe? Which, you know, a lot of people oh, will hire, you, hire you would, booth babes. You know, you and I would have to do oh some goodness. major, some some heavy uh, yeah. plastic surgery. Oh, major, my God. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and I just had to laugh because, you know, they're like, you know, 
is this assumption that here I am, a young woman, and I'm actually just hired to be the booth babe. Well, actually, I built the booth and all the marketing and collateral that went with the and, booth. And at that <laughs> moment, you could have turned around, as some people do, and, and feel offended and go on and on right. about that. Or you can just laugh at it. Yeah, I laughed say, it off. Right. And just said, you know, give me five minutes, I'll tell you all about the booth. <laughs> and, you know, so. honestly, I think that is a huge difference. I'm raising a girl. She's all into social justice and everything Yeah, gets her a little bit irritated at this right. moment. It's that time of life. Of course. Um, but I, I hope that she would have that kind of response because it is, you can take it one of two ways, but it does you no good. Absolutely. To, to sit there and be aggravated by something that is, you know, it, 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 this person, they didn't mean anything no. negative by it. Absolutely. They were giving you a compliment in their own way. Yes. And so, you know, here, here's a great opportunity to kind of flip the switch and change their mind. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, you know, instead of being frustrated, I just saw it as an opportunity to show them my stuff, you know, and, and, and be really confident in what I know and who I am. You said flip the switch, and so I'm going to flip the switch on Okay, us. great. And what well, a time in your life, this is to me the, the crux of your story, what I thought was absolutely remarkable. You decided you when you were in New York, and you were at some pretty big investment banks. Yeah. Um, I just don't want to do this anymore. And so you found yourself a new career. Yeah. Can you share how you did that? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the reasons that I went to Wall Street after graduation was because it almost felt safe, which is yeah. funny. It's, it's not, it doesn't really give you that feeling of, of safety when you think about finance, but it was really an extension of college because so many of my classmates were making the exodus to New York City and working for one of the big banks. Um, you know, what was great about it was it gave me an incredible training program. I got to meet people from all around the world. I got to learn from some of the best and brightest minds I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, and it just felt like a continuation of my education, right? Because... I learned business writing. I learned how to make a great PowerPoint presentation. I learned Ooh. how to use Excel. You know, <laughs> that, uh, I have to laugh. I, I still use to this day. I, I learned how to give a presentation in front of people. Mm. Um, you know, big people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, all really, and also how to navigate through the politics of a really, really big, crazy company, you know, in size. But then the stock market crashed. You know, I was there from 2007 to 2009, which was a really interesting and scary time to be working on Wall Street. Um, and it was an opportunity, though, for me to kind of rethink what I wanted to do with my life. I had that internship at Merrill Lynch, so I had a job offer from them, you know, pretty early into my senior year. So it was kind of, okay, check the box. Yeah. They're a great firm. I'm going to get great training. I'm going to learn a lot. And I'm going to live in New York City, which was the goal. But now, you know, a couple of years into the, into the job, the stock market's crashing and everyone's starting to rethink, is this the right fit for me? Yeah. Um, like, what do I really want to do? What do I care about? How, you know? Well, yeah. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly it matters like, yeah. wow, is there something I care? Exactly. About? Not like that I can do, you know, it was almost like getting that job with Merrill Lynch was just like getting into college. It was another accolade or accomplishment, mm -hmm. it had nothing to do with me. Yeah, that's, to a, do. that's a great insight. So I, you know, also at that time, a lot of people, there was a, a lot of scrutiny um, for the financial industry. And I didn't necessarily agree with what leadership in this company, with whom I'd never met before, was doing and the decisions they were making and how it was impacting people. And so I... It to, you know, to use the phrase again, flip the switch and started to think about moving into healthcare, which was an area that I cared deeply about. Wow. Um, well, you know, I had 
kind of started to explore health and fitness as a career because it was very well represented in my personal life. I was really passionate about running at that time. I started competing in marathons, but I also was doing it with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Mm -hmm. They have a program called Team and Training. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother died, my, my dad's mom died of leukemia before I even knew her. Um, so, and you, so you had that inherent yes, empathy. And absolutely. So, and so you think, okay, I can, I can care, I can add value. I, yes, I can help people. Um, you know, I, I was learning about the disease and how it impacted people, but I could also do something really positive and raise money and then do something positive for myself and start you know, running these marathons for a charity. And I just, I loved the community I met around it. Um, not only did you get access to you know, training on how to take care of yourself, the best care of yourself as you're training for a big race, but we also got to connect with patients and hear their stories and be inspired by their journeys. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, you know, healthcare definitely seems like an area where I'd feel really good about what I'm doing. Um, and so... Depends on what part of healthcare, for sure. Right, absolutely. Yeah. That, that is a very good point. Um, and I was also, at the same time, in New York, I started volunteering um, with an organization called Savvy, which stood for Successful and Victorious Youth, which was really... Um, programs um, in inner city areas for girls who were extremely bright but didn't have access to resources to help them find jobs, get into colleges, um, explore what career opportunities could lie in front of them, you know. And so I started meeting at Bedford-Stuyvesant High School with a group of young women that was, were hand-selected by the principal to work with me and a friend of mine on things like preparing for the SATs, building your first resume, um, having an interview for a job, and you know, actually, you know, working with these girls and helping them, you know, really gain the self-esteem to go after their dreams was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. Well, and you're walking into if any I'm sure most people that 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 hear this will um, understand the difference between Manhattan at that time and Bed Stuy. Oh yeah. So and you're going to their public high school. Oh yeah. So you're you're meeting kids. through security who, and the whole the whole deal. Yeah, yeah. There's, they're they're living a very different existence. Right. It's it's not very far away in distance, but it's yeah. It's states away. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I well, one of the things that I had always done for friends um, and colleagues is I love helping people establish their own brands. So I'm always that friend who you send your resume to before you're applying for a job or your cover letter to. Mm. Or if you're thinking about preparing for an interview, how are you going to be able to communicate who you are in a succinct way? Sure. Um, I still do it today. I'm, I love helping people um, really, you know... Craft their craft message. Craft their message and understand what their strengths are and how they can be differentiated. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I started doing that work, you know, with these girls, um, which, you know, for the first time they look at you and they're like, really, I'm, I'm good at something. I, I could go to college. Um, and that's a really, you know, actually, you know, helping them believe in themselves. That was something that was really special for me. And I, again, it's, it's easy to dismiss something like that, but it, enthusiasm and optimism Mm -hmm. is really just a repositioning of whatever situation you're in. Right. Going, you know, how can yeah. I take what's perceptively possibly ne negative and... Turn it into and, a positive. And position yeah. it to be a positive influence, right. a learning opportunity, whatever. Right. And, 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 that, and, and that's helpful for, for them, I imagine. Absolutely. Well. And I mean, and, and to get back to your question, I know I went off on a tangent there, but... When I started to rethink where I wanted to be, you know, healthcare was was one area, but I wasn't necessarily sure what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. and so I thought consulting in the healthcare space would really afford me the opportunity to get exposure to a lot of different industries and types of work and figure out 
what I really cared about and what yeah. really got me up in the morning. Which is smart. Right. So I, um, I found this very small boutique management consulting firm in Philadelphia. How did you find them? Online, believe it or not. I really wow. just did research. I, it was funny. I was meeting with recruiters. I was looking for opportunities in New York, but I was also open to looking for opportunities in other cities. Mm-hmm. And I found this firm in Philadelphia called Dynamic. And at the time, I think there were about 15 full-time employees. Um, and at, also at the time, Philadelphia was really the center of healthcare in that there were a ton of pharmaceutical companies and still are. Um, making their headquarters there, a lot of health insurance, a lot of hospitals doing really innovative and cool things. Yeah, their children's hospital is among the best. And um, this firm was very small, very entrepreneurial, um, and I applied blindly on the website. And here I was applying for a consulting role coming out of finance. Um, But I really, you know, in looking at what it was that they did, I started to realize that a lot of the work that I did within Merrill Lynch Mm -hmm. and even with Savvy and in other areas of my life was almost like internal consulting, right? Was understanding what the challenge was, what the problem was that the organization or that the person was facing and how to craft a solution that met the needs of that person or organization. Um, And so I started to kind of rethink my resume, you know, the resume that I had created to get the job at Merrill Lynch, um, and put on, you know, put it through the lens of a consultant. Um, and you know, I'm still telling my story. I'm just kind of shifting it and putting it into, you know, positioning it so that it really sounded more like an internal consultant within Merrill. Right. And it worked. Which is the uh, first time I've ever heard that in my life, that right. it was a, it was a sort of like, completely redo how totally. do I look at myself differently yeah and and take this take myself on as a project and right it was you know it was an opportunity I could have just kind of like just added my Merrill bucket and submitted my resume or you know I started to realize the importance of mapping and aligning who I am to an organization you know to what they care about and what they were looking for so again hard work right that is not easy no I there is nothing that most of us hate worse than going over our resumes (laughs) I know it it can be painful right it's a painful process but here I was helping friends do that I had to do it for myself I had to kind of take a step back and you know it's interesting because then I would go on in pharma to relaunch a drug you know with an with a new brand and new position there's always an opportunity to refresh your own personal brand um and even just like rethink the way that you talk about yourself and who you are based on what it is you're looking to do and that you know maybe what your ambitions are so I was actually what's funny is Vynamic and I don't know if if it's to this day because now Vynamic has grown and exploded and they have um, offices in Boston and in Philadelphia and it's just so great to see how well they're doing but I was the only person to just blindly come in through the website they never, they all really grew organically through referrals and, you know, connections that the employees had. Um, but I was just this random chick, again, <laughs> coming in through the website and something must have really stood out in my resume and my cover letter for them to give me a call because but, I didn't. And they said that, didn't they? They did. They, I mean, it's still a story I think their CEO tells to this day. See, I, I find that remarkable. Mm-hmm. I find it remarkable, and and we rarely get to see justice played out. Right. And to, to watch somebody who has the stamina at that moment in their life to say, okay, this isn't right for me. I'm at this certain age when a lot of my friends are making a lot of money. Right. I could be just coasting on that and yeah. keep making money or I could do something I care about right. and then putting in the hard work to redo your resume to rethink yourself and your speak to do the research that's right. hours and hours of time it's exhausting to think about and you did it right. and it magically right was rewarded and what's so cool is that that what you just summarized is exactly what being a consultant is all about right because 
you're always presented with a new client and a new project and you better get smart on who that client is and what that project is all about. Um, because there's not just a one size fits approach for every project. You really have to empathize with the needs of that organization and what they're looking for um, in order to deliver something that actually is a solution that works for them. Yeah. And so it was, you know, going back to the the fear factor, <laughs> you know, that I often had have had in my career, I would walk into a place where I'd never done work with this type of company or these type of people. I'd have to navigate, you know, through their politics and understand what it is that they really needed and craft something that could really help them. Um, and that is really kind of what I did for myself to apply for the job, but then had to continue to do the research, the work, the relationship building in order to um, make an impact with clients. What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things, what are your fears and, and, and the kinds of things that you've run into that were challenges yeah. you, you, you really yeah. had to stop and, and take note of? Right. I think, and this is something that I think a lot of women will agree with. I think that there are a lot of times um, in my life where I've experienced what I like to call like an imposter mentality, <laughs> where I am given a responsibility or a position and I'll say, can I really do this? You yeah. know, I, here I, I did a really great job selling everyone on the fact I can do it, but do I really have enough experience? Do I have enough experience to apply for this role? Do I have enough under my belt to ask for that promotion or that raise? Um, you know, do I really feel like I'm deserving of a great and big opportunity? Um, and it's funny, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with other women who experience the same kind of feelings. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not old enough. I haven't had enough experience. And I remember reading a stat somewhere along the way that men apply for jobs that, you know, with the job description cites things that they don't have, have you know, they don't have experience with, but women never do. So, you know, we'll look at a job description and we'll say, you need 10 years of this and five years of this experience and an MBA. And if you don't have all of those things, as a woman, a lot of times you'll say, I'm not even going to go there. It's, it's uncomfortable. I am not deserving. I'm not worthy. It's not for me. And, but, and frankly, I know that job descriptions have just gotten out of control. Yeah. That they're, you know, they want hundreds of things right. that you, no human being no, could exactly. be all of these things. Exactly. And men, uh, more often than not, will apply for the job, even if they don't have the requisite experience because the thinking is get me in the room I'll convince you mm. that I can I can do this um so you know there are a lot of times where right before a meeting right before a presentation right before I'm asking for something or advocating for myself that I feel as if I'm not deserving of what it is that I'm asking for and that is something I've definitely had to work through one of my you know, earliest mentors in my career um, was a woman named Vic Noble, who I worked for at Shire Pharmaceuticals. Um, and she's an amazing, powerful, incredible marketing mind and woman leader. Um, and she pointed out to me early on, she said, you are a people pleaser. You're, you know, you are always saying yes to people and trying to please people. And you'll get nowhere if you please everyone because you'll please no one by trying to please everyone, right? And yeah. you will, um, and it, really I, I started to see that this, you know, was a little bit of a weakness that I had to work on. And it was hard, it was hard work. It's in my nature to be agreeable and to tell someone to yes, yes. And say yes, right. And you know, I can't tell you how many times I've taken on more than I really can handle because I'm afraid of mm. saying no. Um, and you know, a lot, there have been people who have said, you know, people who please everyone aren't interesting people. <laughs> you know, they're not, they don't have a point of view. They don't have an edge. And so I've really um, focused a lot of my career trying to shed that people-pleasing mentality and be edgy and maybe piss some people off and maybe, you know, have an opinion. Have an opinion. And I, you know what? I actually have found that when I stand up for myself, 
when I'm confident in my ask, when I'm confident in my no, yeah. that I get more of what I want and um, gain more respect in my career. Have you, um, I know you've been in a lot of situations that were male dominated and you just yeah. mentioned an extraordinary mentor. You've mentioned her to me before and I want to interview her. Yeah, know? absolutely. Um, but uh, have you run into what a lot of women talk about, um, sort of that female adversity, that competition thing that goes on? I've seen it before. Um and it's such a shame, you know, because I, I just think that women should lean on one another. We're, we're like, we can only help each other advance and grow. Um, I've been fortunate enough that I have worked, for the most part, alongside women who have always been a huge support system for me. So even in male-dominated industries, I've been really lucky to work with some incredible women. I mean, Erin is one of those women Um She's amazing, and I've loved actually, you know, watching her grow and really emerge as, like, this incredible marketing leader. And she's talking about Erin Webster, who yes. we've talked to, and you'll have to listen to that podcast. Yes, and um, I, when I worked for Vic, I worked alongside a good friend of mine named Michelle, who has also really been a rock star in pharmaceutical marketing. She's... Mm actually back at Shire working for Vic again, which is really cool. Um, but what was great about Michelle is we started working for Vic around the same time and we had cubicles next to each other. Right. And if things got crazy and, you know, we just were needed somebody to vent to, we would go into the bathroom and cry or vent or whatever oh, it is fabulous. that we needed because, you know, we had the rule you cannot, you know, Vic also said it, you can't cry. You cannot cry. Yeah. And that is my rule. I will never, no matter how hard something gets, I will never cry in front of any, anybody. Have you, have you <laughs> ever seen the movie Broadcast News? I'm, no. Most women of my generation, they will just say Broadcast News. And you know that yeah. there's a scene where Holly Hunter, who is this ever-powerful television news producer. Yeah. Um... Every day she spends time in the bathroom sitting on a, on a, you know, with the, with the top down on a toilet, sobbing, her oh, brains yeah. out, then goes back out there and does it again. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you need, you need to take a moment. And I, and I have had many of those bathroom cry session, <laughs> brush it off, walk back outside and just deal with it, um, moments. And, and so, you know, and, and one of the things that has been great, uh, for me as I've kind of moved along in my career is... You know, I, at MC10, and then um, I joined Lose It, um, which is a health and fitness app, as their VP of marketing. Now I had the opportunity to kind of, again, flip a switch and be the mentor to young women. Um, and that was extremely challenging, but also so rewarding and wonderful. Um, you know, I think I had, there was a period of my career where I was always kind of the the doer, you know, uh -huh. I was always, give me direction, I'll go do it, tell me what to do, and I will, you know, check the box and overperform, and I was really comfortable in the kind of, that kind of role, you yeah. know, and then I became a manager, yeah. you know, and then a vice president, and now I had a team, or people asking me, what do I do, and here I had a tremendous amount of comfort in the, the doing and the heads down work. And now I actually had to be the one helping to mentor and grow young talent and asking them to do something and taking my hands off the wheel. And that is difficult. That is difficult <laughs> yeah. because sometimes they don't want to do what you want them to do right. or they don't want to do it your way right. or they, they look at you and they think it's fake all that enthusiasm. Right. And, so. and, you know, you don't want to be a micromanager, right. but you also don't want to give no direction. So you ask yourself, what kind of leader do I want to be? I've mm. never, you know, for so long, success to me was defined as checking the box. Right. And now I was the one setting the agenda and, you know, trying to, to grow talent. And actually, it's not about me anymore. It's giving the credit to the people who work for you. It's not about, you know, getting the accolades or the recognition for the work. It's about giving the accolades and the recognition for the work. And yeah. a lot of people, 
you know, not just women, I think struggle with that transition from, you know, worker to leader, overseer. And a grower of people, which I think takes a tremendous amount of your soul. And and, and I'm sure a certain generosity of spirit, of saying... I'm not going to take credit. I'm not going to. I'm not going to call myself out here. Right. I'm going to call out my people and let them shine. Absolutely. And so you know that's also been, I think, a a really cool um, lesson I've learned throughout my career. And you know, I've had, I haven't had huge teams, but I've had really great teams. I've been so lucky to work with such incredibly talented people, and you know, a lot. Uh, now that I'm looking back, mostly women. Um, and really, I it's usually because I see a spark in them and a hunger and a curiosity that I feel in myself. And I only want to help them grow and cultivate their talents. I really, it, in my heart of hearts, I love helping people. You know, whether, even if it's not somebody that works directly for me, but someone in my world who is looking for a new job or trying to make a move. I, you know, I love networking with people, meeting with people, helping in any way I can because I've had so many great mentors in my life that I wouldn't be where I am today without them steering me. So, it's important for me to, to continue to seek out mentors but also mentor other people. I, and that's when you say the competition with women. Yeah. It's women who will help, you know, women help women who help women. Yeah. And, and the more often we talk about it, and the more often we just pay it forward, just totally. do it, um, the better the atmosphere will be. Absolutely. I mean, there'll always be people that that feel differently, that were raised differently, that see the world differently. Right. But there's, as you said earlier, there's always sort of a point of similarity where you can start and, and start a conversation. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I'm going to I'm going to say goodbye, but thank you so much for sharing your story today. This is this was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Thank you so much for having me, Ella. This is great. And I'm going to make you connect me to somebody so we can keep this going. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Thank you.